Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And the movie that we're going to be talking about today is one called Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire, a film from English director Alan Clark that came out in either 1985, 1987, or 1989, depending on which source on the internet you check. Uh, I really was not able to figure out which one was correct. I'm, I'm going to guess 85 is right, but who knows? Yeah, 85 uh, was is what's on IMDb, so that's what I okay. tend to go by. But sometimes that's uh, that can be misleading. Yeah, that's canonical. Uh, we, we can just accept it. And this is, as far as I can tell, the world's only supernatural post-apocalyptic billiard sports musical. Uh, <laughs> and, and folks, this is such a fit for Weird House Cinema because this is truly one of the strangest movies I have ever laid eyes on. Yeah, this one, I think, initially popped up on my radar when we were talking about Split Second, the Rudger Hauer movie mm-hmm. uh, that also features one of the actors in this film, Alan Armstrong. Uh, and uh, and I was looking into Armstrong's work and I saw this curious title and I had to, and you know, every time I looked at it again, I've, I've, I'd bring it up occasionally, you know, I'd, I'd look it up and think, was this the, the week that I take a closer look at this picture? And every time I learned a little bit more about it, I was a little more convinced. Well, I I know months ago we watched a video of one of the songs from this movie because, again, it is a musical. Mm -hmm. And it was a song where Alan Armstrong is livid because there has been slander uh, or I guess it would be libel printed about him in a newspaper. Mm -hmm. And uh, he appears to be a vampire in this song, but it was sort of ambiguous without having seen the whole film. And, uh, ooh, it was so good. I remember there's a line that has stuck in my head ever since we first watched the song where he protests, uh, I never had no alligators living in me bath. And yeah. <laughs> we, we just, Rachel and I walk around the house singing that a lot. Oh, man. There are so many lines in this movie where I, they would just, they, they're, they're washing over me. And I'm not yeah. sure if they're just, uh, you know, are or were usual turns of phrase. Uh, in um, in British slang, particularly Cockney slang, in some uh-huh. cases, or if this is just just pure poetry, uh, you know, from the screenwriter here, uh, you know, s- stuff about uh, there's there's one character where uh, Alan Armstrong's um, uh, character is talking about her and says, oh, if she if she ever told the truth, it would turn her teeth black. Like yes. that's there's something almost Shakespearean about that line, but I have no idea if that's something that people say every day or if this is it. This is the time what those those words exited somebody's mouth. Same here. There were a lot of expressions in the movie, and there were multiple. I think. Uh, uh, regional British sort of uh, vernacular coming out. Like one character is clearly he's like East End London expressions. Mm-hmm. He's Cockney. That's our, our title, uh, Billy the Kid character. But then the Green Bay's vampire, I believe, is supposed to be from the north of England. I think he's from Yorkshire or something. So, so there may be different sort of regionalisms. But I, I have to also say, uh, I think of all the movies we have ever watched for the show – this was the hardest to understand. It's absolutely <laughs> just clattering with deep British accents and expressions. Uh, I think specifically a lot of the Cockney expressions just went right past me. And I was like, I don't know what that meant. I mean, I get the vibe. A, a lot of it is insults of various kinds. This movie is 
thick with insults. Uh, almost every reference a character makes to another character is an insulting one. And uh, even with subtitles on, I ha- often had no idea what characters were talking about, at least the first time I watched it. Yeah, I, I watched this on Amazon Prime with the subtitles on because I wanted to, to, to follow, follow the dialogue and also the lyrics a little bit closer. And there were times where the, the subtitles could not keep up and they would just, yeah. the subtitles would say speaks in a foreign language <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in reference to something somebody's saying. And then also sometimes the, the subtitles were a little inaccurate. They seemed to be off just a little bit. Yeah. So I want to come back to the genre designations I made about this uh, up at the top. So again, this is a sports movie which mm-hmm. is going to be unusual for Weird House Cinema. I mean, usually sports movies are very uh, kind of down the middle, mainstream. They, they don't usually get that weird. Um, but this is a sports movie in that the main conflict is between two players of a sport, of a game called Snooker, or as all the characters in in this movie say, Snooker. I think that's the British, uh, the common British uh, pronunciation. But we're U.S., so we're going to say Snooker. And if that if that irritates British listeners, I'm sorry. But I may have to it, say Snooker. Though, because I've just yeah. snooker so many times, I um, in in my head as I've and, and and certainly I've heard it while watching this film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, snooker is a type of cue sport or billiard sport that is uh, popular, especially in England, and I think also especially in in places where there was like a former uh, British colonial presence. But you know, th- th- there are leagues all around the world, apparently. Uh, so, but for cue sports or billiard sports, you know, imagine a game like pool. If you're not familiar, it, it is played on a table like that. It's a pocket ball cue type game, uh, but it has that extra special English flair. It's got a you know little uh, whiffs of afternoon tea on it. Uh, but on top of that, it's not just a sports movie. It's a supernatural sports movie, since one of the two players is literally a magical vampire. This is a little <laughs> more ambiguous early in the film, but later on, he shows off his powers, and, and Alan Armstrong is literally a vampire. You had the same understanding, right? I think so. That This this is a movie that, I mean, it's how many different versions of unreality is this yeah. movie in? Because just by virtue of being a musical, a musical is a film in which people spontaneously burst into song yes. and do prolonged musical numbers in order to express themselves or or sometimes not even to express the, what the character's thinking or what their character's motivations are, but just sort of to set the scene. Like, where are we? Let's sing about the place that we're in. Or, you know, or, or sometimes it's a little more obscure than that. I'm not sure what some of these songs really had to do with the you know the over the main plot or the main characters but i i i get that they kind of contribute to the vibe i think the opening song is just about money yeah yeah green tickets <laughs> yeah yeah uh but okay so so it is a supernatural sports movie i was trying to think of other examples of that i know there are some but i was like uh angels in the outfield <laughs> maybe maybe mm-hmm. airbud depending on if that counts yeah, well, Angels in the Outfield definitely is probably a good example because that's a movie that um, I've not seen in a very long time, but it's about baseball, but it's also about the feelings we have about baseball and the connections we have through baseball. And so in a similar sense, this is not just a film about snooker. It's about, <laughs> um, it's also, it gets into like, what does it mean and whose game is it? Uh, yeah. And that's where you get into a lot of the deeper um like uh, social commentary that's in this picture because ultimately it's it's a, it's a pretty political picture. Yeah, I would say it is not nearly on the same level of uh sort of syrupy sentimentality as a movie like Angels in the Outfield. This mm-hmm. is more of a kind of nasty movie. 
uh, well, I, I don't know about nasty, but it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's harder edged that like all the characters are mean. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. There, there is some, some, uh, you know, London underworld types throughout the, the picture, but it's all, I mean, it's a pretty tame picture. I don't want anybody yeah. to think that it's uh, like a video nasty sort of a situation. No, 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 no. I don't mean like that. I just mean that it's just full of mean attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not a lot of love in this picture. Okay, but I, except we also for the game, except right, for the game. yeah, it's all about snooker vibes. But it's also a, a musical, as we said. So everybody's constantly breaking into song, including multiple songs that are about snooker itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I had to throw in also, I called it a post-apocalyptic movie. Now I say that uh, on my own accord. It's not because anything is uh, explicitly acknowledged about that in the movie. But it just seems to me that the entire film takes place in a vast network of fallout shelter tunnels and underground bunkers. Yeah, absolutely. The entirety of this film looks like it takes place underground in the the windowless interiors of, uh, I don't know, maybe um, uh, the, 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 the city of Arakeen on Arrakis. Yes, um, yeah. There's nothing even halfway resembling a natural or outdoor environment. It's like the film's vision of London is that of a tomb, um, which is fitting. Yeah, and th- there's only one scene I could recall in this movie where you actually see the sky, and it turns out that sky is fake because it's when the Green Bay's vampire is on a film set being shot, pretending to be a vampire with longer fangs than his mm-hmm. actual fangs, and uh, and then behind him you can see a red sky with clouds moving through it out the window of his vampire's castle, uh, but then it turns out, yeah, that's not a real sky. He's actually in a dark, uh, dingy film studio, and it's a fake sky going behind the back of the set. And I, I think all of this is perfect. I'm not, I'm not entirely clear if this was like a budget situation where they had to shoot everything uh, on a set, but I, I, I would not want this picture to have any uh, exteriors <laughs> or no. any natural environments. Like it adds to this feel. It, it does feel post-apocalyptic. Oh, yeah. You could, if you were to say, oh, well, this takes place in uh, Mega City One from the Judge Dredd comics, I would say, yeah, absolutely. It, it yeah. really, and, and, and that would be fitting for the time period too, because these are, it's part of the same sort of era of British fiction and sort of, it's a uh, sort of critique of British society during the 1980s. There's a constant sort of shoving out of the frame of a nagging sense of worldwide despair that yeah. that is uh, embodied in the fact that there are no windows in this movie and nobody ever sees the sky. And even when characters are presumably outside, they're actually inside in some pitch black tunnel that's just sort of uh, illuminated by these sickly street lights that kind of cast a a pool of disease over whatever you're looking at right now. Yes, absolutely. Now, okay, I said at the beginning that there appears to be some confusion on the internet about what year this movie was released. I think we're going with 1985. That seems the most plausible, but I've seen 87, I've seen 89. There is also some confusion about the title of this movie. Now, everywhere I could read, it was acknowledged as Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. Bay's is B-A-I-Z-E. That is the name for the material that that coats the top of a, a snooker table or a pool table. Uh, Mm -hmm. But also, if you look at the very beginning of this movie, when the title screen comes up, it says the movie is called Billy and the Vampire. (laughs) And so I I did not even notice this when I watched it. Yeah, I took a screenshot for you to look at. Mm -hmm. Now I see it. Yeah. So, yeah. So what store of information has superseded the title given within the film itself to make the official title? It's like, no, no, it's not Billy and the Vampire like the movie says. It's Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. (laughs) 
I mean, Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire, like that's sung at one point. So yes. I feel like that has to be the authentic title. Um, yeah, now, Louise Gold sings that. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, one other po- possible point of confusion with the title here is that there is a 1966 horror western titled Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Um, <laughs> it has nothing to do with this picture. Um, that one starred John Carradine as like an Old West Dracula um, and I think uh, I read that John Carradine referred to this as one of his worst films, which is a bold statement coming from John wow. Carradine. Yeah. But John also, Carradine, how is that possible? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he just had a particularly, uh, it was a particularly uh, annoying shoot or something. Because he, he was he, he was in some great pictures, but as we've discussed before, he was he was in a lot of pictures and he was in a lot of stuff that uh, we would struggle to, to say was, you know, was, was any good. He did Red Zone Cuba. <laughs> mostly, that's mostly stock footage, I think, that one. Yeah, Night Train to Mundo Fine. Oh, wait, did they just take that shot of him singing a song and just tack it onto the beginning of the movie like he didn't know he was in it? <laughs> Possibly. But uh, I, I'm assuming that uh, there's some other reasons that this is a, a, a snooker film with a vampire in it. But I also help, I can't help but imagine that just the title, Billy the Kid versus Dracula, somehow influence the shape of this picture. It just maybe helped nudge it in the right direction. I can see that. Okay, I, I feel like before we move on any further, we have to explain what snooker or snooker is because before watching this movie, I had no idea. All I knew was it looks like it happens on a pool table. Right, yeah, and that's that's all I knew going into it. Uh, and, and I do have to, to say, you don't really need to know how snooker works to enjoy <laughs> the film. Um, But, yeah, here's some of the basics. So, snooker is said to have originated among British soldiers in India during the 1870s. Uh, Cue sports themselves are are much older. And it's kind of weird to think about it this way, but they're largely thought to be outdoor lawn games that have been miniaturized and constructed for indoor play. Oh, okay. So, something like croquet maybe became Mm -hmm. something like pool or billiards or snooker. Yeah, based on what I was reading, like the, the, the main connection seems to be, yeah, there's something like croquet that was played with, uh, with cues. And uh, over time, people were like, well, what, what if we did this on a tabletop instead? You know, maybe they were sick of having to deal with mud and whatnot. And then eventually yeah. they're like, well, what if we did this inside? Maybe I, I can't be outside right now or I don't want to be outside. So uh, that seems to be basically how it all came together. Some form of billiards was apparently in use during the 1340s. And uh, King Louis XI of France, who lived 1461 through 1483, had the uh, what is thought to be the first indoor table. And this quickly became the fashion, killing off the outdoor and lawn variants that spawned it. Uh, so, uh, again, I, I just I find this amazing to think that, that, uh, that all these games that have uh, some sort of a bays top, um, you, know, you know, pool and snooker, uh, they're, they're essentially just taking the outdoors and recreating it indoors. Like, mm-hmm. why haven't we done that with everything? Why are we still playing golf outside <laughs> like, uh, like, like cavemen? Why can't we miniaturize that and play it inside? Well, I don't know. I'd say the majority of golf now played is probably of the video variety, Mario Golf or whatever. Yeah, well, because that's the ultimate, right? That's the next yeah. step. I mean, when you are out on the actual golf course, you cannot wear a Bowser costume. If you did, people <laughs> would look at you weird. Oh, by the way, one thing I, re- I read, this is interesting, popularity for Q games uh, has apparently gone up and down over the years in different uh, parts of the world. Uh, but it's interesting to consider that apparently the 1961 film The Hustler 
which is about pool, helped boost the popularity of pool in the U.S. once more. Like, like its popularity had dipped down, and a movie about uh, about the about pool helped bring it back into popularity. Wait, that's not the one with Paul Newman, is it? That seems too early for that. No, what's what's the one with Paul Newman? Is that the Color of Money? I think you're thinking about the sequel to the hustler was the, the color of money right the hustler oh. yeah it was the 61 that one did have paul newman uh, but it also had jackie gleason okay yeah anyway back, back to snooker as best i can tell it emerges a variant of existing q games in the officers messes of british troops in india uh, british indian officer neville chamberlain not to be confused with the prime minister of the same name allegedly finalized the rules the word snooker was apparently slang for first year cadets <laughs> okay Something about like, well, you know, you can, you know, the first year cadets, they're definitely snookers, but everybody's a snooker when you play this game. Like it's, I don't know, something, uh, an even playing field for, uh, for everybody in the British military or something. Oh, I see. That's funny because that calls to mind the the themes of this movie of Alan Armstrong's character being very mad that just anybody thinks they can play snooker these days. Exactly. So snooker, like uh, billiards, is about sinking balls into holes. And just as with, uh, you know, American pool, you hit the white ball, but you don't want to actually sink the ball while pocketing other balls. That's what's called scratching. Mm-hmm. I think I learned this for the first time uh, uh, whilst playing uh, a video version of pool in like a Grand Theft Audio game or something. I was like, oh, I guess I'm not supposed to actually make that ball go in the hole as well. <laughs> but now, what, where it gets interesting with snooker is that it involves colored balls uh, as well, uh, like additional colors. So the game consists of 22 balls. You have... One white ball, that's the cue ball. You have 15 red balls, which are one point each. You have one yellow ball two, for two points, one green ball for three points, one brown ball for four points, one blue ball for five points, one pink ball for six points, and one black ball for seven points. Uh, now, the main thing I noticed that was interesting about snooker in the movie was that every time you sink a red ball, uh, I think they pull the black ball ball out of the pocket and put it back on the table so you can just keep sinking the black ball over and over um yeah so and again i may have this wrong and i and certainly we invite uh anybody who has experience playing snooker uh mm-hmm. to write in and uh and correct us on anything and also just tell us what you thought about this movie uh, uh because i assume you've seen it why wouldn't you have seen it if you play the game um so yeah if i think the idea is if you you have to declare if a non-red ball is in play or on before you strike it. Okay. And if it's not on and it gets uh, pocketed, it gets to come back out again. Okay. Again, I'm not sure. I don't think this is necessary to really understand to enjoy the movie. But, uh, but yeah, if you start watching the game really closely, you see all of this in play. Because they had, uh, they had like snooker advisors uh, on set uh, to make sure that everything looked uh, correct here. Oh, man, you wouldn't want to make a, a snooker verisimilitude error. That would, that would really sink your movie. No, you don't want, you don't want the snooker fans uh, mad at you. They, they, they bite back. <laughs> so at the start of the game, the Reds are in a pyramid, and the break, uh, that's you know, like another uh, a pool, uh, you know, other cue sports. Uh, you, you have to, to hit the cue ball and break up that mass of, uh, of red balls. Um, yeah, non-red balls that are pocketed accidentally come back into play. You have to declare which non-red ball is on before you strike it. And each game is a frame. Uh, that's, this, this, is basically, this is basically how it goes. There are various other rules in play, but these are the key ones. And basically all you need to know and more before enjoying Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. <laughs> 
Well, I watched it knowing nothing about Snooker, and I understood what was going on. So, so, so be not intimidated. <laughs> right. And I think that's important because, like, this is a movie that's clearly made for Snooker. I, I don't know. You're going to do a larger question of who this movie was made for. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I, I guess it was made for people who knew who know what snooker is and what the, the basic rules are. Uh, and yet they did a good job of making it accessible for people who are not really familiar with that world. But I'm, I'm sure it's also full of little in-jokes for people who do know things about snooker. Uh, in fact, it's right there in the title. Like, what does the green beige vampire mean? I did not know going in. But the, again, that, that is like the material on the table, right? Right, yeah. It's a woolen cloth, similar... Uh, Similar, it's, it's easy to mistake it for felt, uh, but that is what snooker is pay, played upon. It's green, so it's green bays. Um, and, and apparently the archaic version of, of the spelling in, uh, in English was like B-A-Y-S. So it's mm. pronounced, you know, more or less like that. Um, it's also used in other Q games. And also you'll find it on like card playing tables, which oh, I yeah, guess in, right. in yeah. the olden days we played cards on the ground, which is why we <laughs> Yeah, the cards, they move from lawn games to to the table to Mm. ye old base table (laughs) all right well let's do the elevator pitch on this one uh it's basically this in the ultimate snooker showdown six-time world champ and possible vampire (laughs) maxwell randall battles young cockney upstart billy the kid within the subterranean bowels of 1980s london Let's hear some trailer. Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. Big Jack, Black Wednesday. Walk the wire, walk the door. Chalk on the All right, and I think everybody got to hear a little bit of the music there as well. Uh, speaking of which, I guess we haven't talked much about the the quality of the music in the movie yet. I'm going to say I'm uh, I'm in the middle on on the music <laughs> part of this musical. I love how weird it is overall. I would say the music for me is hit or miss. Some songs are really good, and others are, are kind of skippable to me. Yeah, I would agree with that very much. I'm not a huge musical guy. I'm I'm not even sure exactly what genre we're in. Is this kind of like mm. sort of rock musical, but sort of musical theater? Yeah, it's a mixture. I mean, some songs feel like like rock musicals, like they could you know come from from Tommy or anything like that. And other ones are just more uh, traditional kind of uh, Broadway musical style, or uh, or I don't know what you'd call it, even even operatic. In fact, I'd, I'd say my favorite song in the movie, "I Bite Back," is more opera style. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would agree that when I first started watching this, I was like, eh, I don't know if, if I'm a huge fan of the music, but I I fell in love with the picture the more I watched it. And uh, afterwards, uh, I found myself coming back to at least a few of the songs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also really like the Supersonic Sam's Cosmic Cafe song. That one's good. Yeah. And then in our final showdown, there's a little bit of music where we, we call, have callbacks to various previous numbers, which was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So who actually directed this? This was directed by Alan Clark, who lived 1935 through 1990 
English director, perhaps best known for his gritty and serious British dramas from the 70s and 80s, including 1982's Made in Britain, in which Tim Roth plays a neo-Nazi skinhead youth, Ooh. as well as 1979's Scum, starring Ray Winston as a juvenile offender. He also did a film in 1989 titled The Firm, which has nothing to do with lawyers. Instead, it's about <laughs> Gary Oldman as a soccer hooligan. Nothing. Okay, so this is not the Tom Cruise, uh, John Grisham adaptation. Right. Um, he did a lot of TV work. I feel like those three films seem to sort of signify a lot of what he was about. You know, like these are three mm -hmm. different films about like uh, really, you know, disturbed and or violent uh, members of sort of the, the, you know, the British working class. Um, a lot of his work is very political. And again, despite the weirdness and lighthearted spirit, you know, more or less of this film, there are obvious political overtones as well. It's about, you know, who, oh, yeah. who owns this game, you know, what's going on in society at the time, uh, you know, who has, who has the power, who has the balls uh, uh, th that, that comes into play in the final, uh, the final showdown. Like there's this, we'll, we'll get to it in a bit, but uh, yeah, there's this idea of like the balls are the power of society and who has access to it and who is, who is dominating uh, the playing field to an unfair degree. Yeah. And yeah, so this is, I would say, pretty straightforwardly a class war movie and, and mm -hmm. class in the British sense of like more overtly acknowledged existence of, of class strata in society where there's like a self-conscious upper class that is, they think of themselves as the upper class and they are very mad about the idea that, you know, that, that riffraff are invading their institutions. They don't want just, you know, whatever guy who just stumbled drunk out of a video arcade to come play <laughs> snooker against them. This is a gentleman's sport. Don't you understand? Yeah. Don't be coming in here with your green hair. All right. The writer on this was Trevor Preston, who lived 1938 through 2018, known for such films as 2003's I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, starring Clive Owen, and the 1972 psychological thriller What the Peeper Saw. Have not seen any of those. <laughs> Since this is a musical, I am going to go ahead and mention the, the music credit on this before we get into the cast. Um, uh, so George Fenton, born 1949, has the music credit here. Five-time Academy Award nominee, responsible for numerous scores, including Groundhog Day, Mary Riley, The Fisher King, The Company of Wolves, and Cry Freedom. He also <gasps> scored of wolves. Yeah, yeah. That's the if I'm remembering correctly, that's the one where you had the 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 wolf mouth coming out of the human mouth transformation, right? It's a Neil Jordan film, I want to say. Yes, yes, it's right. Mm -hmm. That one is very weird also. that We yes. can possibly talk about that in the future on the show. Uh, Fenton also scored numerous documentaries, including several David Attenborough documentaries, so like the big banner David Attenborough uh, ones like Blue Planet and so forth. If you've seen oh, wow. one of those, you've probably listened to George Fenton's music. He also did a lot of theater work as well. Well, like I said, uh, on this one, I would not say the music doesn't have me across the board, but the highlights are really good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the weird things about the the score for this film is, as far as I can tell, it was never released in any format. I could find no evidence of it ever coming out on, on vinyl or cassette, much less on CD or as a digital um, album. Uh, it seems like a real shame, especially now with all these like special editions that come out of uh, of cult favorite scores and soundtracks. Can't uh, you imagine the the Green Bay's vinyl? Uh, <laughs> it, it, it just screams to be done. I don't know why it hasn't. 
Oh, how would they do? Oh, what like right in the, in the middle part that doesn't play? It's like the green felt, or uh, yeah, or it's even it's made out of it's made out of repurposed cue balls or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so many directions you could go, and uh, I, I guess it just hasn't happened yet for one reason or another. Hey, well, whoever owns the rights, issue that thing. Yeah. All right, let's get into the cast. Uh, it's it's Billy the Kid in the Green Bay's Vampire. So let's start with Billy. Uh, Billy the Kid is played by Phil Daniels, born 1958. This is our Cockney snooker hero, uh, actor of stage, screen, and TV, who appeared in Quadrophenia, Zulu Dawn, Scum, uh, The Bride. That's the uh, the Frankenstein film that has uh, uh, Sting in it, uh, oh. among others. Uh, he was a voice in Chicken Run, and he's in the music video for Blur's Park Life, in which he okay. plays a singing salesman. So he was in, I think he was the lead role in Quadrophenia, playing uh, playing so that's uh, another sort of rock opera from the who uh, most people know tommy but don't know quadrophenia yeah i, I think i actually like quadrophenia a good bit better uh, at least the, i've i've never seen the movie to be honest but i love the album and i think he's the main kid in that who's also like a kind of like he is in this sort of a uh, bored slightly threatening disaffected youth yeah yeah <laughs> now does he sing in quadrophenia do you know yeah, I don't know if the movie Quadrophenia is like Tommy the movie where they have like, you know, different actors come in and do do the parts uh or if it's just like, you know, that they're playing the actual album with Roger right. Daltrey singing and and so forth. Okay. Now, the character Billy the Kid here is allegedly based on real-life snooker player Jimmy White born 1962, who's still active today in professional snooker and is a three-time world champion, nicknamed the Whirlwind, highest ranking was, I think, number two in the world. Now, could you find anywhere where the actual snooker players that these characters are based on have commented on this movie? I did not. I, I couldn't find anybody really commenting on this movie. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if it just, if it just uh, like, if it came out at a bad time or they didn't know how to promote it. Like, I was mm-hmm. a lot of times you'll find actors like say david warner talking about just various small films they did and having some something to say about them and i couldn't find anybody anybody commenting on this film uh i don't know if it if it doesn't have quite strong enough of a cult following or 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 what the situation is i mean nobody's saying doesn't seem to be nobody seems to be saying anything negative about it but they don't seem to even be acknowledging that it happened uh maybe i'm just missing a, a juicy interview here or there hmm well, uh, well, I would also speaking of actors commenting on the roles like David Warner going back. I would love to hear what Alan Armstrong thinks about this. Uh, so, should we talk about Alan Armstrong? He plays the titular vampire Maxwell Randall, the uh, the 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 Green Bay's villain of the night. Yes, yes, uh, Alan Armstrong, our scowling prince of darkness um, and, and snooker. Uh, so, uh, we we talked about him on our split second episode a bit, but yeah, he has. Probably, I think one of the best sneers in all of cinema, the best scowls. Um, he can he can look with such disdain at the camera or at other other characters on screen in a in a, in a way that I don't know other faces cannot. He has a true gift. Yeah, he's he's excellent in this. I mean, he he's great in everything. I think I've seen him in. I, well, I don't know if he was all that memorable in uh, in Split Second, but that, that was not really an actor's workshop kind of movie. Uh, <laughs> he was still memorable though. Like he played Rudger Hauer's character's boss. who yeah. was just, just in a snarling rage the whole time. His character in that, uh, his, his name was Thrasher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, 
So they just get into argument. Very much like every conversation is sort of like badge. I'm taking your badge and your gun, sort of a thing. You're taking it too personal. You're off the force. You're a loose cannon. Here's your new partner. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, but Armstrong's been in tons of stuff. Uh, I I think he was something of a a workaholic for a long time. Uh, He's been in TV, movies, uh, stage productions. Often plays sort of scowling authority figures and the like. His first screen credit was 1971's Get Carter. And he's had other notable roles in such pictures as The Duelists, Kroll. Kroll! Uh, yeah. He, he's kind of not as recognizable in Kroll because he's, um, he's got like a, his beard's grown out and he, I don't know, he, he doesn't look as, as, uh, as Alan Armstrong as he often does, if that makes sense. I remember from when I was younger, I have a very firm stamp of his face from the movie Braveheart, which is mm-hmm. uh, which is not a great movie, uh, not just for its historical inaccuracy, but I, I think is sort of egregious in many ways, but has a fantastic cast. I love Patrick yeah. McGuhan as the the mustache twirling king in it. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was in some some big name pictures for uh, uh, for a spell there. He was in Sleepy Hollow, The Mummy Returns, Van Helsing, Oliver Twist. Uh, so, and he's done very, very well for himself, it seems, but he's exactly the sort of actor that has appeared on both Tales from the Crypt and Downton Abbey, which I think <laughs> that's all you need to know about Alan Armstrong. It, like that covers uh, sort of the, the sort of roles he can play and the sort of play, roles he often does play. But so, okay. Billy, the kid was apparently at least loosely based on a real snooker player and the Green Bay's vampire is as well. Yes, that is even more of a case with uh, with this character, uh, the Green Bay's vampire. Maxwell, the Green Bay's vampire, is based on Welsh professional snooker player Ray Reardon, born 1932, um, still alive as of this recording, now retired, but he was a six-time world champion, at one time ranked number one in the world. And I don't, I've, I've not read anything to indicate that this guy was a, a meanie or a villain in real life but yeah. his nickname and it seems like all these major snooker players have nicknames his nickname was dracula because he had a pronounced <laughs> widow's peak and uh, kind of sharp looking teeth yeah he looks like somebody who would be a bella lugosi copycat in a parody film uh, about yes. dracula yeah you can see why the nickname stuck now, now, as you're saying, though, I, I want to be careful. To, the, this movie casts, I would say, strong. You know, you could even say moral aspersions on all of its characters, even the alleged hero. But I don't think that's meant to apply to this this real life guy, this actual snooker player. As far as I can tell, it's more of an aesthetic inspiration, right? Yeah, sort of like, well, you know, that guy that they call Dracula. What if he really was a vampire? You know, uh-huh. and you can imagine sort of the conversation and the the brainstorming session that that uh, that, that carried on from there. The other thing that's a parallel, which is interesting, is that in the movie, Alan Armstrong's Green Bay's Vampire does product endorsements. So he's like mm-hmm. filming a TV commercial where he gets up out of a coffin and then sprays breath freshener in his mouth. Yeah. Um, but uh, you shared a video of this guy in a beer commercial. And I got to say, great beer commercial. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the announcer is asking him, uh, does does two bore gold help you play better snooker? And he's, uh, excuse me, snooker. And he's like, no, I just like to drink it. And yeah, <laughs> thumbs up. Product like endorsement. That. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I, yeah, I think Armstrong is great in this role. Um, it's, uh, it, it's wonderful because he's, he gets to be kind of a, a very much a vampire at times. He gets to be a supernatural menace, but he also is 
like this human being, you know. Uh, so he's he's not completely unrelatable, even though he is a bit nasty and, and egotistical and very much out for blood against this young generation of snooker player. Um, but uh, but I don't know. It's 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 a really good performance. If you if you like this guy, this is definitely a movie to see. Yeah, he's he's a little bit sympathetic because even though he's clearly a bad guy, he's also having a hard time. Like they yeah. are printing slander about him, or excuse me, libel in the newspapers. And he's to some extent being manipulated, as we'll get into as well. Yeah. All right. Uh, another major character in this is the character T.O., which stands for The One. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another connection to Quadrophenia. Oh, yeah? You know that song? No, I don't. I'm really not familiar with Quadrophenia at oh. all. Well, look at the song. I'm the one. Uh, oh, it's a song okay. in Quadrophenia. I, I assume this is just a coincidence, but yes, oh, okay. T.O., the one, um, played played by Bruce Payne. Yes, born 1958. Uh, I'd say there's a very good chance most of you out there are familiar with Bruce Payne as a B-movie villain, mm. uh, thanks to various roles in such films as The Howling Six, The Freaks, uh, <laughs> Necronomicon, Book of the Dead. Uh, Passenger 57, Warlock 3, The End of Innocence. That's where he takes over the, the lead role from Julian Sands, who played uh, the, the Warlock in the first two pictures. You know, he looks a little bit more like Julian Sands in this movie when he's yeah. got the, the blonde hair. That's right. Yeah. I think most of us picture, if you think of Bruce Payne, if you think of Bruce Payne at all, you picture like a bald, scowling British villain. Um, uh, but in this picture, he's younger, you know, thinner, handsomer, looks very, very much uh, came out of the same uh, you know, clone vat as Julian Sands. <laughs> oh, but he was also, uh, he was in Highlander Endgame. That's, uh, that's the one that had both uh, um, uh, Christopher Lambert and what's his name? Adrian Paul, the guy from the TV series. Oh, I didn't know that. I've never yeah. seen it. I, I haven't either. It's. Oh, okay. I don't think it was ex- extremely well received. Uh, <laughs> but he's in that. Is it more? Is it one of the more sword fighting focused ones, or one of the more hand to hand martial arts ones? I don't know. It's one where they. I think they tried to to bring the film franchise and the TV franchise together into like one final showdown, while also, of course, continuing to ignore Highlander Two: The Quickening. Well, there's your problem right there. Right, exactly. Uh, Bruce Payne was also in uh, the year 2000's Dungeons and Dragons, uh, starring <laughs> yep. alongside uh, Jeremy Irons. Yep, I looked up, because I've seen that movie, and ooh, I gotta say, I recall it being not good, but quite a fun viewing experience, because it's it's in the unintentionally hilarious category, <laughs> and it's got Jeremy Irons playing some kind of frothing warlock. I remember him being... It being one of the most hyperactive performances I've ever seen. And uh, and I think Bruce Payne plays like his main warlock henchman. He's like bald with, with blue lips and he's got weird snakes coming out of his head and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I watched it once and it, yeah, it was, I, I was not taken by it. It, uh, it did not reflect well on Dungeons and Dragons for me. I recall it being the kind of movie that, uh, like, when they want to show blood or some other kind of liquid, like, running down a set of stairs, they had – it was, like, CGI blood, but it was, like, year oh. 2000 CGI blood. And I was like, how much would it have cost to just, like, film actual liquid pouring down these stairs? Oh, maybe they were like, we got to get that – we got to get a better rating. We got to get the kids in. So just make the blood as fake as possible. All right, so that's Bruce Payne. Uh, he's he's pretty good in this. Like I say, this is this is not the Bruce Payne that most of you are familiar with in this picture. Uh, he's singing. He's a lot more fun. He's not just a scowling villain who gets punched in the face by a hero. 
You know, speaking of the singing, I don't know if you agree with me on this, Rob, but I will say that while in general the cast is great in this movie, most of the players do not seem to have been cast on the basis of singing ability. Uh, it's more like they were cast as actors and then it was like, oh, you can sing too, right? Yeah, <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, but I would say that the next person we're going to talk about, Louise Gold, is probably the best straightforward singer in the cast. Uh, she sings the song where you hear the name of the, the movie, Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. It's during like a, a practice montage and she's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Louise Gold playing Miss Sullivan, the troublemaking journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gold was born 1956, and she's had quite a career as a, as both a screen and a stage actor. She was in the 1982 film adaptation of uh, The Pirates of Penzance. Uh, but she's probably best known as a puppeteer who worked on numerous Jim Henson productions over the years. I was quite surprised to read this. Yeah, and, and when I say Jim Henson Productions, I'm talking the original Muppet Show, uh, the original The Dark Crystal. She's uh, uh, credited as a performer uh, uh, for the, the Gourmand Skeksis character. Uh, she also worked on The Muppet Christmas Carol. She came back to work on The Dark Crystal, The Age of Resistance, um, just to name a few. She also appears as a ballroom dancer in Labyrinth. I think she also did various live action dance bits on the Muppet Show in addition to her puppeteer work. So anytime they needed a, you know, an actual human being moving along, maybe dancing in the background, um, uh, Louise Gold was one of the people they turned to. So yeah, I would say she is also great in this. I, I think she's the best singer in the cast, but also has a, a very good sort of cold, closed affect as the utterly unscrupulous snooker journalist. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Now, she's not the only female character. We also have uh, Miss Randall. That's Maxwell's wife, um, who's, who's you know very supporting, a very, I think, a strong character. Yes. She has his back. <laughs> she has his side. She drives him to the snooker uh, championship match yes. there in a, in a motorcycle, and he's in the little sidecar. Brilliant. A very good staging, because they're driving through green fog, and the, the vampire's wearing this helmet, with uh, and she's not wearing a helmet. Oh, God. These the scenes of driving, uh, you might think, well, the driving scenes, those are the ones that are shot outdoors. No, these no. are shot, if you've ever watched Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, you yes. know how they do those driving sequences? This is the same technique. Like, I, I, can, I don't know if there are other films or other TV shows that, that prominently use this method of creating the effect of driving at night, uh, but, uh, but, but I, I would not be surprised to learn that uh, this was one of the, the reference points for Dark Place. Oh, it's so dark place. It was everyone's about to be. Why can't she be mine? I wish I were more attractive, like Douglas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, Miss um, Randall, though, is played by Eve Ferret, who was born in 1963. British actress, comedian, singer songwriter, came up in burlesque and then appeared in such films as Haunted Honeymoon, um, Absolute Beginners, uh, which I believe also had um, had pain in it. Uh, but then she also pops up in the David Bowie short film um, music video, Jazzin' for Blue Jean. Yeah, she's really good in this. She always has a th- – I think the whole movie has a toy poodle in her arm in every mm-hmm. scene. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there, there's a great scene where Alan Armstrong is is uh, having fits because a bunch of libel has been printed in uh, in the newspaper by Miss Sullivan – uh, and making all these allegations about him, and he hands the paper to uh, to his wife, and she's reading it, and he, you know, he's like screaming, and she just says, <laughs> "What is a terrible turkey?" <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's, yeah, she's good, and and she's got some pipes. Uh, she's oh yeah, she, she, she can she really does some kind of opera soprano singing. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Now we have another great character actor in this. Uh, Don Henderson plays the Wednesday man, who's kind of a, a British underworld figure that, that uh, plays an important part in the plot. I thought I recognized this guy from somewhere, and I was like, what is that strange uh, hair-beard combination? Why have I seen this before, and why do I pair it with this gravelly voice? And then I saw your note, and I was like, oh my lord, he's in Star Wars. He's in the scene on the Death Star. Yes, he plays in 77 Star Wars. He plays that Imperial general who's choked out by Darth Vader for his disturbing lack of faith. No, no, no. I, I think uh, I think it's the younger guy, the other guy who's like, he's all about how good the Death Star is and how it's better than oh, Vader's yes, Starfleet. Right. Yes, you're yeah. right. He, they look very similar, except... Um, yeah, except for Don Henderson has has a has an eviler face, so yes. in, in kind of a yeah more of a uh, you know a rat like he has rat like eyes. So yeah, this guy's never going to get choked out by Vader. He's gonna he's gonna fall in line. He's only going to be as uh, as snotty as he needs to be. He knows how to maintain his place within the Imperial ranks. I think he's the guy who's saying if the rebels are able to obtain a yes, technical yes. readout. Yes, yeah, he, wonderful, wonderful little nasty role. Um, and I, I think he, he made kind of a career of, of such roles, but he pops up in a number of, of pictures. He was in Brazil, and uh, he was also in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. He was in The Island opposite Michael Caine and David Warner. He also played the ghoul in 1975's The Ghoul opposite Peter Cushing and a very young John Hurt. I actually looked that one up. That one looks, uh, I haven't seen it. It looks like it may be uh, rather culturally insensitive, but also mm-hmm. has a great uh, Hammer style cast. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it either, but uh, but yeah, the, the cast looks interesting. And John Hurt looks, I don't know how old he was when that film was made, but uh, he, he's far younger than I'm used to seeing John Hurt. Like the, uh, the, the wrinkles had not uh, really set in yet. Yeah, the, he is a spring chicken. <laughs> Now, uh, another actor I just want to mention, not, not because he really has any connections to anything, but just because he's really on in this picture, is Neil McCall, who plays Big Jack J. What is this guy supposed to be? I guess he's like the, the snooker hype man. He just comes out, when the snooker game is about to begin, he comes out to sing a song about how snooker is awesome. Yes, uh, snooker, so much, so much more than just a game. Um, that's the that's the song and it's just such a performance and it's all about yes we no matter what our differences are you know snooker is the best snooker brings us together it's uh it's not just a uh, it's not just a game it's the world you know he talks about how if you get to heaven it's going to be green bays everywhere yes so anyway it's a tremendously flamboyant performance uh neil mccall was born 1947 still active um, he also had a small part in 1983's The Pirates of Penzance, did a lot of TV work, and has also done a fair amount of uh, voiceover work in animation and video games. He's wearing a great, like, uh, sort of green, satin, almost paisley blazer in this, and mm-hmm. uh, he's got a pompadour. Rachel walked through the room, and she was like, oh, is Morrissey in this? <laughs> <laughs> it's not him, but it's the, not the him, hair no. is similar. But the hair is great. Uh, one more person just to mention, Clive Tickner, born 1943, was cinematographer on this picture. Um, we don't always highlight the cinematographer, but it's interesting because he was also the cinematographer on 1992 Split Second, uh, which we've referred to already. Another movie without a sky, really, that sort of right. takes place all, all within tunnels, even when it's allegedly outdoors. Yeah, so uh, you, can see the, you can see the DNA in both of them.
Okay, well, should we talk a little bit about the plot and some of our favorite scenes? Oh, yes, let's do it. All right, well, as I already mentioned, uh, it starts off saying, hey, this movie is called Billy and the Vampire. If anybody tells you different, don't believe them. Uh, so the, the the first scenes we get of the characters are intercutting between uh, two different scenes in different places. So we're watching Billy the Kid. Again, this is Phil Daniels, our, our uh, in the words of, uh, I think in the words of the Wednesday man, he's our cockroach cockney cowboy. Mm-hmm. He's got a strong curly mullet and he's doing like late night private snooker games for big cash bets. He's making money. Yeah. And then meanwhile, T.O. is uh, – that's Bruce Payne. He's somewhere else. He's gambling at a card game. I think it's supposed to be poker, and it's revealed that he is in some kind of debt to a very scary loan shark, and this is The Wednesday Man. And I, again, both scenes feel like they are taking place inside a fallout shelter where light bulbs are as rare as gold <laughs> because bo- both scenes are illuminated only by by scant little – bits of light and there's just flooding darkness all around. Yeah. So we're in the catacombs and and the first thing we get is that already it, this world is all cutthroat competition. Uh, Billy's playing snooker for high, high sums of money. T.O. is gambling for big pots. And I will say that from the beginning, both of these, though, I guess they're our protagonists sort of, they're not traditional, lovable, sweetheart protagonists like you might get in some other musical both of them already have a kind of sort of nasty nihilistic edge. Like you could imagine Billy the Kid killing somebody with a broken bottle outside a pub over an argument that started on a like Mrs. Pac-Man cabinet. Yeah, yeah. These are not characters who are involved with snooker because they just love the game. It's because they want the money. In fact, though, I think the first song or one of the first songs in the picture is about the money. It's called Green Tickets, uh, referring yeah, green to green stamps. To green stamps. I'm sorry, referring yeah. to um, cold hard cash. Is that what it is? I thought that's what it was, but I didn't. This is one of the many things I was like. I think <laughs> there's some cultural thing I'm missing here. Could this be about some kind of coupons? No, I think it's just about I cash. Think I think it's cash. Yes. And then okay. I could be wrong, but that's that's certainly what I got from it. What else would these these guys be be singing about? I don't know. Well, actually, let me clear. I think for I think TO's into the money and I think Billy I wouldn't say he's in it for the love of the game. I would say Billy is in it for ego. He seems to be like mm. he wants to be the best in the world. He wants everybody to recognize that he's number 1. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's 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 taking the money and he's, he seems to be blowing all the money. Um, yeah, and and he's but he's li- he's living life like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, the, his relationship with the money is interesting. So he's, it's like he wants the money, but then he also he's not trying to save up or anything. Like he gets out of his first game, and he seems to be just wandering around, like handing out stacks of cash to people living on the streets, which makes him seem like nice. But he's also, I think, living a life of shallow luxury. Like he just he just wants fancy cars and and cool clothes and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's not really Robin Hood so much. It's it's more like he disdains the money as much as he disdains anything else. But again, to point out that so he's wandering around outside in the streets and it's clearly it's not outside. The outside is inside. He's in some kind of pitch black tunnel with just these little uh, showers of sickly light coming out of something overhead. Mm-hmm. And uh, then then after this, we basically get the setup to the plot. So T.O., he has his his gambling. He's playing cards, and he after this he goes to deliver a big pot of money to settle outstanding debts with the with the imperial officer, the Wednesday man. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, some set notes. He goes to meet him in a place that looks like an underground construction site where everything is draped in tarps. <laughs> 
Oh, and here begins a funny thread that goes throughout the movie. So he has the money that he owes the Wednesday man, but the Wednesday man won't accept it because it is a couple of minutes past midnight, making it a Thursday. And the Wednesday man apparently just like only does things on Wednesdays. And so if right. you don't get him his money before midnight on Wednesday, then your $25,000 debt turns into 100000 Yeah, I love it. Like they never explain it. So it's it's almost kind of like um like sea level batman villain kind yes. of um, weirdness yeah. uh so yeah i absolutely love this the wednesday man is only going to do crimes on wednesday on thursdays no 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 longer just see him next week if you're still trying to do crimes on thursday is yeah it's like i'm the clock king i only accept payment in clocks uh the wednesday <laughs> man only accepts payment on wednesdays and uh, the other thing I was thinking of is he's, he's kind of like a Dick Tracy villain in that sense. Yeah. You know, you got you've got Little Face and you've got the Wednesday Man and the Wednesday Man, you know, closed for business six out of seven days. Yeah, I love it. Uh, but anyway, so Tio's in trouble now because he got there a little bit late. So the Wednesday Man offers him a way out. It's like you owe me a hundred thousand dollars, but Tio is Billy the Kid's manager. And so the Wednesday man tells him, you know, if you can arrange a snooker grudge match between Billy the Kid and Maxwell Randall, a.k.a. the Green Bay's vampire, you're going to be off the hook. I'll, I'll let your debts go. And uh, I think the idea at this point is that there might be some kind of fix to the match, though uh, the, the it's not fully agreed at this point. Oh, and he, he finishes up by saying, be sure to make it a Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the Wednesday man does not seem like a, a character who plays fair. So uh, you, you just assume that he has some sort of scheme in mind. And we, of course, find out more about that as the plot rolls on. Right. So next we go to meet the Green Bay's vampire himself, Maxwell Randall OBE. And we meet him when he is filming a TV commercial. So first we just see him like pop up out of a coffin and approach the camera and he's got these big fangs. But then he shoots himself in the mouth with uh, breath freshener spray. Uh, and uh, this is the scene I mentioned earlier that has the, the closest thing we ever get to seeing the sky or outdoors because there's a fake red sky behind the windows in the set. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he comes up and then they call cut and they're like, okay, uh, yeah, nice job or actually not nice job. I think they say average job Maxwell, uh, (laughs) and, uh, he's going to come back and shoot some more stuff later. But this is when I first had the question, like, wait a minute, is he actually a vampire or not? I, I have questions about the, the reality of this movie, like what is taken to be literally fact within the narrative. Right, because at this point in the film, it's like, oh, he's not really a vampire. This is just his persona, and he plays it up professionally, and he's definitely playing it up for a TV commercial. But we also establish early on that Maxwell Randall is is a jerk and a creep. Like, we see him trying to get handsy with a makeup artist. So, Maxwell, mm-hmm. not cool. Right. But but then we follow him home, and, uh, oh, this is this is where we, we get to, to see that he's not just playing up the vampire persona uh, in the outside world. It's also very much his, uh, his, his, his home fashion choice as well. Oh yeah. So he, in his house, uh, this is one of my favorite sets in the movie in a movie full of great sets, floor to ceiling, black marble pattern (laughs) wallpaper. Mm -hmm. I I mean, just awesome. Uh, Red velvet furniture. It looks like, and a giant framed portrait of Bella Lugosi. I was wondering, yes. wait, is this supposed to be Maxwell Randall? But when I got a good look, I'm like, no, that's Bella that's, Lugosi. Yeah, it's Bella Lugosi, yeah. <laughs> and no windows anywhere. No, None. nowhere to be seen. Second question about the reality of the supernatural elements. 
is Mrs. Randall also supposed to be a vampire? Because we see that she has sharp teeth as well. I kind of get the impression that yeah, anyone in his circle could potentially be a vampire, uh, though we, we rarely see any other signs. Except the fact that they never go out in the daylight because daylight doesn't exist in this right. film. Right, and no, none of the characters go out in the daylight. Yeah. yeah. What's that? Uh, so in, in, in this scene, we get uh, sort of the setup of both the rivalry between the two snooker players and the class war themes. So this is where the snooker journalist, uh, Miss Sullivan, comes in. And so she arrives in Maxwell Randall's house to interview him about the possibility of this grudge match between him and Billy the Kid. Actually, I think she starts off just saying, like, tell me what you think about how snooker's going these days. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, uh, of course, Maxwell hates the very idea of the younger generation of snooker players, and he hates Billy the Kid. Uh, he, there are a lot of great quotes here. He says the 20% men have moved in with their smiles like wet soap and their 500 pound suits. <laughs> 10 years ago, it was still a gentleman's game. Now it's a circus, permed hair, open collars. What does he, does he say luminous waistcoats? I'm not sure what that <laughs> means. Uh, but then the, the final straw where he starts to like lose it is he says cues that unscrew in the middle. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that that was, that was considered uncool. I always thought that was kind of cool, right? They're mobile. You can unscrew them in the middle. But yeah. I think that means like a cheaper one. I don't know. Yeah. Like he's, he's really upset that the underclasses are gaining access to snooker. He says that one of the players has green hair. Uh, Billy the Kid is the worst of them, uh, the worst of them all. And he starts screaming about him and he gets so mad that he like literally becomes paralyzed. Like he can't speak anymore until uh, Sullivan just leaves. Mm -hmm. It's a great meltdown. Yeah. And so here, here we get our themes. The Green Bay's vampire, he wants snooker to remain a dignified game for the upper classes. And Billy the Kid represents everything he hates. Unlanded riffraff from the street coming in to turn his beloved snooker into, uh, into an ashtray farce. <laughs> but so we, we've had the journalist visit the Green Bay's vampire at home. And now we uh, apparently are going to visit Billy the Kid at more or less his home, which is Supersonic Sam's Cosmic Cafe. Another unbelievably weird set piece. This one I really enjoyed. This, this, I guess this is Billy the Kid's hangout. And Rob, how would you describe this place? Um, it is another subterranean realm. It is like um, it's like the Greek underworld if it were just for playing video games. But video games we never get to see. We just see the illumination of the the video games on people's faces. Yeah, uh, you know, ga- ghastly illumination via like primitive Atari game, and it seems very dismal. But at the same time, Billy and the others are, are singing so optimistically about this place that you feel like there's some weird sense of futuristic op- uh, optimism about like who they are and what technology can do and I don't know what you know where games are taking them it's 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 an it's a weird juxtaposition yeah they're in this this grisly green tomb uh, and they're singing like rapturously about how that they they have like claimed asteroids for themselves and yeah. stuff yeah, so it's a very joyous song. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, yeah, it's all it's like ecstasy almost, and and so you reach this place by navigating a maze of underground corridors illuminated only by horrible green light, and inside you see all these people. It's like a military formation of yeah. Cockney youths playing arcade cabinets, and like you said, we never see the screens, just like the green glow from below. 
while the 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 video soldiers are sort of uh, jostling about as they operate the joysticks, they're all facing the camera again, like a like a like a squad formation. And I just yeah. love this sequence. It, it's it's really uh, imaginatively choreographed. Even though nobody's really dancing, they're all just standing at the cabinets and swaying and jostling. But uh, it looks great, and it goes great with the song. And the scene ends with the same snooker journalist, Miss Sullivan getting some mm-hmm. incendiary quotes from Billy the Kid to incite the Green Bay's vampire. So she's trying to she's trying to help T.O. get a rivalry going between them so that they'll do this grudge match. Uh, and let's see, I wrote down some of the good things that Billy the Kid says. He says, anyone with a name like Maxwell's got to be a king-sized prawn. <laughs> and then he says, I'm going to give him a terrible turkey. <laughs> but oh boy, from here on to the, the reaction to the article she prints in the newspaper – uh, this is probably my favorite scene in the movie. This is the song I Bite Back, which is yes. – it starts off with Alan Armstrong getting the newspaper and you hear him screaming throughout his house, slander, calumny, character assassination. And uh, he's he's screaming about what's in the article to his wife and she seems just mildly amused. This is where she asks what terrible turkey means. And he starts singing this song called I Bite Back. This is one where it's hard to communicate what this scene is like and and how great it is without actually singing the song, which we can't really do. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you can find video of this on the internet, I think. So I, I would suggest looking it up. It's very weird and great. Well, while Maxwell and his wife sing, they are standing in what looks kind of like a combination of a stage, just like mm-hmm. a, a you know a stage with wooden floorboards, but it also kind of looks like a windowless bank lobby in Gotham City. Yes, yeah, <laughs> very gloomy. But he's filling the space with his rage and his voice. Yes, and and the song is all about how uh, he, he's furious. All these things that were said about him in the article is, are not true, and he goes through like this song has wonderful insults in the lyrics. Uh, He says, I may appear bizarre with my predatory features, but when little boys make noises of defamatory nature, I bite back. And -hmm. he goes through like the list of allegations as he refutes them. He says he loves the smell of garlic. He he protests that he never bit a Bible salesman, or if he did, it was just for a laugh. And he says, I never had no alligators living in me bath. I have no (laughs) idea what that means. Yeah. Or the next uh, one. The next one's also confusing. Oh, it's so good. He says, it says here, when I dine, my meals glow in the dark. I, I don't <laughs> quite know what that is, but that's really good. <laughs> and he's clearly insulted by it. He yeah. also uh, meant, he, it, it, it's, there are also a, a few moments in the song where he seems to be like alluding to his own humble origins, you know, to say like, you know, I'm, like, if he says something about how he, when he first started out, he didn't even know how to spell Transylvania, you know, yeah, that, yeah. And he's, that he's ultimately pretty far from this vampire persona that he's he's a he's a human being that's worked hard for what he has and now the upstarts are trying to drag him down yeah so he is taking the bait this mm-hmm. match is on and uh in this song uh, we also we learn that that T- this is where we find out that to and the the pot stirring snooker journalist miss sullivan have conspired to get billy and maxwell so mad at each other that the match will definitely happen um Let's see. Now, after this in the movie, there's a long sequence that I guess we don't need to get into because it's mostly just like backstory between Billy the Kid and T.O. They're talking about how they met each other and how T.O. is going to take Billy the Kid to the top. Um, uh, But uh, suffice to say that this whole section is cowboy themed and it takes place in some kind of windowless subterranean lounge with gold bar lights and rifles on the wall. 
Yeah, they do a little target shooting. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, and I was never sure if this was supposed to be Billy's flat or just a place they hang out, but um, it, it's, it's, it's their home turf at any rate. It's like the cowboy hangout. Now, we should go to one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Actually, I don't know. It's con- This might be my favorite scene in the whole movie. It's uh, the one with Maxwell's father under the oh. snooker table in his house. Yes. this I, I must have rewatched this scene about five times. It uh-huh. is, I think, the strangest scene in, a, in what is ultimately a very strange movie. Um, so, T.O., goes to Maxwell's house, uh, which we've already seen parts of, to meet with him and propose this match between Maxwell and Billy. Um, So, you know, we already know that Maxwell's house is gloriously dark and decorated with portraits of Dracula. But in this scene, it becomes apparent that Maxwell's father, who we're told is the greatest snooker player to ever live, is himself an actual vampire, like a Nosferatu-esque vampire. And Uh he is... Perhaps, it's hard to figure out exactly what this is supposed to be. He seems to be entombed within a glass casket that's topped with a black granite snooker table, which Randell Sr., again, the entombed vampire, uses to communicate from beyond the grave by, like, psychically sinking balls on the table. Yes, he, he's like, from beyond, he's like, it's like an Ouija board, but in the form of a snooker table, except without any bays on it. It's like a, a stone top snooker yeah. table. It is a it is an alarmingly strange scene, and it's played very serious, especially by uh, by Armstrong. Uh, he he really brings a, a a dramatic energy to this scene where you, you know, like he's very serious about about asking his father if this is a a match that he should agree to, and then the balls move on their own, and it's uh, it's so shocking that uh, To faints. Yes, it's uh, oh, it's it's so good. Now, what he proposes in this scene, what what the vampire does, he says that um, whoever loses the match between Billy and and Randall will agree to never play professional snooker again. Yes, yeah, and and he's like, "What do you think of that, father?" And then the ball just like shoots across the table and sinks. Oh, it's so good. This is yeah. such a weird scene. I loved it so much. Uh, now, of course, uh, we get some more scenes with uh, T.O. and the Wednesday man. The Wednesday man loves this. T.O. tries to resist because he's like, you know, Billy's young. What if he loses? He won't be able to play snooker mm-hmm. again. It, we can't do it. But uh, I think the Wednesday man kind of pressures him into it somehow. He's like, oh, the the wily old sheriff versus the brash young gunslinger. It has poetic overtones, he says. Uh, and then it's implied that he's going to fix the match somehow by making sure – that uh, Maxwell, the Green Bay's vampire, will not be at his best, but he doesn't explain what he's going to do there. Right. It either comes out here or it comes out later that the Wednesday man has money on the kid. So yes. it, it seems that, okay, well, you know, he's, he's going he's gonna to somehow fix it. He's going to make sure that the kid is victorious against all the odds because that's how he's going to make so much bank. And here we get it's a, a lot of jungle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes, a lot of green, a lot of jungle. Uh, but uh, f- from here we go on to a practice montage. That's a, like a song where they're going practice, 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 mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and Miss Sullivan sings Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire, 
And uh, I, I really enjoyed this because it's showing like Maxwell practicing again in the Gotham bank lobby and yep. Billy is in supersonic Sam's arcade from hell and they're <laughs> getting ready for the big match. Oh, and then we see Maxwell and Mrs. Randall riding to the game again through a bank of green fog on a motorcycle and sidecar. She's driving the yes. motorcycle and he's like, you know, three feet down below from her sitting with a scarf on in the sidecar. Yeah, so many little touches like this. Like they made the, exactly the right choice. Like if they yeah. if it was the other way around, it would not be as uh, as, as memorable. Uh, so th- this was wonderful. And from here, it just it, from here it turns into the game. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, it, every sports movie has to end with the big showdown, the big game uh, for for the ultimate championship, and that is what happens here. Though, of course, with plenty of musical interludes and supernatural uh, uh, accents. Yes. Yeah. We have that big number um, uh, about about Snooker. Uh, this is the one where he's like, ah, 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 Snooker. It's the world in a frame. Like it's just, uh, it's like the, the enthusiasm for it. And, the, and of course, we have people in the audience from both sides representing both competing sides of society. And, you know, they're either, you know, they're cheering on their man, but everyone is in agreement that Snooker is great. Yes, and they each, like you say, they each bring their own audiences. So their rooting for Billy the Kid is a is a gaggle of, of disaffected working class youth from Supersonic Sam's Cosmic Cafe, and then on the other side, rooting for the Green Bay's vampire are a bunch of uh, upper class blue bloods in their their mm-hmm. fur coats and things. Yeah. So they each have their entrances. You know, it's very grandiose, a little bit professional wrestling, perhaps. Yes. Uh, but once the theatrics are out of the way, once everybody's had their sort of pro wrestling-esque uh, introduction, it's time to get down to those 17 frames that will decide the fate of our hero and our villain. Well, no, here, I guess we got to explain Maximum Break. Yes. So this is not something I knew about going in. But basically, uh, you know, somebody has to break. In a, in, a, in a cue game, you know, they have to hit the cue ball and sort of, you know, break up the mass of balls and get things moving. Um, but here's something that can happen in, in snooker. Uh, if you start sinking balls right, uh, pretty much right away and you keep sinking balls, the person who does, who breaks, who begins the game can finish the entire game scoring all the points without the other player ever actually approaching the table. Right. And I think the amount of points you can possibly get is variable depending on like what order you sink things in. Because again, they were doing that thing where every time he sunk a red ball, they pulled the black ball back out and he could sink that again. I think I think that's right. Snooker players, you you write in. You've, you okay, fill us okay. in on the details here. But I, I guess I it doesn't really correct. matter. It doesn't really matter. But yes, the Green Bay's vampire just runs the entire game and Billy never gets to touch the touch the balls. Right. Yeah. This is what's called a maximum break. Um, it's it's like the highest break possible. It's a flawless victory. And I was reading about this. It's pretty fascinating. During the 1980s, these were apparently far less common. Uh, something like only eight maximum breaks occurred in professional play that t- entire decade. I don't think that um, the actual snooker Dracula ever scored a maximum break in professional play. Um, but it's uh, it's become more common as you know as often happen uh, in recent years as uh, in recent decades uh, and this this happens with other games as well like the, the players just get better and better and so nowadays if you look at the uh, the scores and the rankings of uh, of of professional snooker players you'll find uh, you know at least one maximum break in there often multiple maximum breaks sometimes a maximum break uh, um, achieved at a very young age 
Yeah, we were looking at who's actually like on top of the snooker leaderboards in recent years, and uh, there's a, there's a guy named Neil Robertson who I think was the most recent winner uh, in 2019 of the Snooker China Open, mm-hmm. and we were wondering, okay, is he this generation's Billy the Kid? I don't know, but uh, he. Uh, Rob, I think you looked this up and found that he's had at least four maximum breaks. Yeah, yeah. And and again, ni- during the 1980s, there were only eight maximum breaks uh, overall. So the uh, the idea that Maxwell's coming into this game and scoring a maximum break uh, on, on the first frame, I mean, it is in indeed um, nothing short of supernatural vocation for the game. He is just completely destroying our hero. And I have to say, it works so wonderfully cinematically because they, uh, they, they just cut to each sinking of the ball. So you have this rhythm down of the, of the cue striking the ball, the ball striking the ball and pocketing. Uh, and they just uh, this wonderful, like just rhythm of relentless victory. But then something else also happens. So not only is uh, Maxwell playing well, like he's, he's just getting these flawless victories one after another, he also... I think I understood a little bit less what was happening here. It's implied that he uses his vampire powers to hypnotize Billy the Kid so that when Billy the Kid actually does have a chance to play, he doesn't see any balls on the table. I was unsure about this as well because we also have like a wake up in the back room where they're like, yeah. wake up, you know, you're behind, you got to get back out there. So I don't know if this is kind of like a, a mental dream sequence where he's just despairing that he's so far behind. And there's this idea, like there's this whole bit where he's like, where are the balls? I don't have any balls to play uh, the game with. Like they've all been sunk. And, you know, this is probably one of the, the more heavy, heavy-handed moments of social commentary in the picture where it's like, you know, the, how are the kids supposed to achieve anything if, if all the balls are being sunk by the the upper class and by the older members of society, you know, is it is it any wonder that they're they're having to cower around the you know the dismal light of their video games? Because what else has have you supplied them in this world? Right, I don't even get a chance to play. I, like, right. I can't even. Yeah, um, and uh, and there's also some some of the the class war stuff between the the audiences because mm-hmm. the, <laughs> like the the disaffected working class youth and the uh, and the blue bloods like sing at each other. Yeah. Uh, in this song where they keep going quack quack quack. I don't think I fully yeah. understood what all that was, but it was amusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then of course we get the standard uh, sports movie arc, right? Because uh, there's a dark night of the soul. Billy, the kid is like as far down as he can possibly be. If he screws up one more time, the entire thing is gone. I, uh, the green Bay's vampires won eight frames out of 17. Um, but then he starts to mount a comeback and right. this all builds up to uh, to a fan- fantastic ending. Yes, uh, I love uh, everything about this ending. Uh, so, yeah, Maxwell has already busted out uh, some what seem like mild psychic snooker powers during one of the musical numbers. So we're not sure if we're supposed to take those literally or not, you know. Uh, but basically, yeah, the kid has mounted a full comeback. Uh, and finally, we're down to the very last ball. And if the kid pockets this ball, then he actually wins. Then uh, you know, he, he will be victorious. And so uh, uh, Maxwell's watching on uh, 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 Billy uh, 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 hits the ball and right as it's about to go into the pocket um, Maxwell's eyes glow like this this ghostly white color with maybe a hint of purple and he reaches out and he psychically freezes the ball above the hole keeping it from being sunk 
And I was like, is this is this in line with snooker rules or not? Is this addressed? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not addressed, but he's he's using his vampire powers to prevent it from happening, to prevent the victory from taking place. So what does Billy the Kid do? He pulls out his six-shooter, aims it first at, uh, at Maxwell, at, at our, our Green Bay's vampire, but then points it at the ball, the, the psychically held ball, shoots the ball, which pockets it, uh, pockets the ball, and then he wins the whole thing. And we get this one last shot of Maxwell, the, the Green Bay's vampire, eyes glowing, face scowling. It's pretty great. I guess you did have alligators living in your bath after all. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it, 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 again, you're left with a lot of questions about, uh, about this movie. I mean, it's a, it, it's a movie that is existing in its own reality, I guess, uh, but, but is, is, is trying to, to say some serious things about, uh, about the real world as well. Well, that's it. Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. I, again, I will stress, officially one of the weirdest movies we have ever watched for the show. Yeah. Uh, I think it's our second musical, our first sports movie— and uh, I have to say, I think it's one of my favorite musical films now. Uh, you know, I'm, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm putting it on the list. It's, okay. you know, it, it doesn't take the place of Rocky Horror in my heart, but uh, it's, it's up there. It's got to be top five. Huh. I, I've never tried to make a, a ranked list, so I don't know where it would go, but I did very much enjoy it. Uh, I've actually really liked both of the musicals we watched for this show. This mm-hmm. and Ship of Monsters are, are, are both absolutely delightful. I think one of the things is, is that if you have characters singing on the screen, singing their lines and using music to uh, to relate their uh, you know their internal uh, experience, then um, you know you're already in kind of a weird place. You're already in a place of unreality. So you can do so many other things and get away with it. Yeah, you can have ridiculous monsters. You can have um, strange vampire powers that are not uh, you know fully explained or understood. What a coincidence! Do you recall now that Ship of Monsters also had late arc revelations of vampire powers. Do you remember That's that? That's right. Yeah. We, we didn't know at the beginning what was going on. Vampire powers revealed after the halfway point. <laughs> Man, I guess I mostly like um, vampire-themed or vampire-esque musicals. That's yeah. that's my, my area of interest. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, call this one. Again, the film is Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. Seems to be available anywhere you buy or rent digital movies. Uh, it's on Tubi, so you can watch it there if Tubi's your thing. <laughs> There's a DVD of the film, but I don't believe it's been released on Blu-ray, at least not yet. And again, sadly, no soundtrack releases. This is one where I would like to see some interviews about like how this happened yeah. and what the production was like. Yeah, because I mean, they it's it's snooker. Like, how many of these guys like were super snooker fans? Did they have to train? Uh, they had snooker advisors on the on the set. On the you know, they were part of the crew. So I just wonder how all of this came together. Uh, such a strange film. It doesn't look like they're using snooker stunt doubles. It looks like the actors are actually shooting the the shots. Yeah, and so I would be. I, this is again where I'd love to hear from actual snooker enthusiasts out there. Like, uh, you know, how, how do how do the actors look in this? Do they look like they knew what they were doing? Uh, I always love to ask my my wife about this regarding uh, uh, actors riding horses because uh, I'm kind of blind to it, and I'll ask, does this does this guy really know how to ride a horse? Does she really know how to ride a horse? Mm-hmm. And my wife will be like, oh yeah, yeah, this this person's ridden before. This person really took some lessons for this, or oh boy, they just stuck that person on a horse and hoped for the best. <laughs> <laughs> but in this, I mean, to my eye, like Alan Armstrong looks 
you know, very intimidating when he yeah. is, uh, he's making his shots. It's, it's, uh, I buy it completely. I don't know if, uh, if the experts out there would feel the same. Maybe that took the place of the singing audition. Yeah. <laughs> they just do a little snooker tryout. <laughs> oh, that reminds me of one little bit uh, that I read from an interview with uh, Alan Armstrong, where he, um, he he said that Arthur Miller, the, the, the playwright, cast him in a play once without seeing him act first, uh, just having some drinks with him and telling him that, no, he didn't need to see him act. He knew he would be good because he, quote, had a peasant's face. And huh. he was, that he was sick of casting actors with, like I guess, like movie star good looks. Oh, he's playing against type in this one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, g- great performances all around. Yeah, I, I love this one. So, I, uh, yeah, I recommend it to anyone out there who's, uh, who's at all interested in snooker, vampires, or um, musicals. There you or go. subterranean life. Yes. <laughs> All right. As usual, if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, it comes out every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast, but on Fridays we set aside uh, set aside most serious matters and just discuss a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 